What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. And I'm Josh Larson. The important thing is we all wanted to have that Barton Fink feeling. I mean, I guess we all have that Barton Fink feeling. But since you're Barton Fink, I'm assuming you have it in spades. Seriously, Bart. I like you. You know who really loves that Barton Fink feeling? Folks in the south of France. Barton Fink's The Coen Brothers. Did you know this, Josh? The only three-time winners of the Cannes Best Director Prize. Hell, I could get you a Cannes Best Director Prize by 3 o'clock this afternoon with nail polish. Okay, Walter. This past spring, the Coens were the co-presidents of the festival's main competition jury, and their pick for this year's Best Director Prize was Taiwan's Ho Shao Shen for his martial arts epic, The Assassin. We've got a review of The Assassin plus our top five Cannes Best Director winners, not all of them being the Coens. That and much more with nail polish, dude. Ahead on film spotting. Film spotting is brought to you by Mubi, a curated online cinema that brings its members a hand-picked selection of the best independent international and classic films. Each week, we like to highlight a few of Mubi's picks that you could choose from. One of those is Child's Pose. It's a surprise winner of the Berlin International Film Festival's top prize, the prestigious Golden Bear, a Romanian film that's a dark skewering of the Romanian upper crust that's little seen in most Romanian new wave films. Another recommendation is Hopscotch, balanced expertly between Cold War intrigue and lighthearted comedy. This satire, mocking the very idea of intelligence gathering, remains an utter delight in the 21st century movie, says, with Walter Matthau and Glenda Jackson as espionage's most delicious comedy. Tag team. One more here from Ubi Summerstown. I'm really curious about this, Josh. Shane Meadows, who gave us This Is England. This is his drama that has that special aura of captured youthfulness that can make cinema so special. It has a fiercely charismatic performance from Thomas Turgus, the director's young muse, who is featured in This Is England and also the miniseries. Every day, movies curators introduce a new title, and you have 30 days to watch it. That means there's always 30 wonderful films to enjoy, all for only $4.99 a month. Plus, when you use their mobile apps, you can download films to watch offline. Listeners of Film Spotting can try movie free for a month, just go to movie.com slash film spotting to redeem now. That's mubi.com slash film spotting. You're listening to Film Spotting with Adam and Josh. The Cannes Film Festival has awarded a Best Director Prize since the festival's second year, 1946. Among the winners in the years since are some of the heavyweights of world cinema, Ingmar Bergman, Luis Buñuel, Francois Truffaut, and Werner Herzog, along with a smattering of auteurist Hollywood types. Scorsese, Malick, and Robert Altman have won it. Also, David Lynch and Gus Van Sant, plus three-time winners, the Cone Brothers. Last year's winner was Bennett Miller for Foxcatcher, and as much as I appreciate Bennett Miller as a director, Josh, that does show us these juries are fallible. For this week's top five, we'll pick our favorite winners of the Prix de la Mise en Scène. That's later in the show. Nice French. But first, our review of the winner of this year's Cannes Directing Prize, Ho Shen's The Assassin. <laughs> Adam, you and I came to the assassin as Ho Shen neophytes. 
It's his 19th feature film, his first in the wuxia martial arts genre, and the first of his that we've seen. So this review won't be able to cover where The Assassin stands among his other work, how it handles some of his more familiar themes, or other auteurist concerns. How do you know I haven't been catching up on all the wuxia classics or the complete masterworks of Ho Shen? I just have a hunch. I know we have listeners who have been doing that. They're host specialists, including a few members of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. So it will be fun to get feedback from them on those questions. That does, however, free up our conversation a bit. So we can consider The Assassin entirely on its own terms and its director with fresh eyes. Set during the Tang Dynasty, the movie follows a trained killer named Nian Yong, played by Xu Qi, who neglects to murder an assigned target early in the film because he was holding his young son at the time. As both punishment and as a test, her master orders her to kill a provincial leader who also happens to be her cousin, played by Chang Chen. We know she can. We've seen her skills in the movie's elegant black and white pre-title sequence, so the tension in the film lies in whether or not she will. I'd like to talk about the peculiarity of the movie's fight sequences and the particulars of Xu Qi's lead performance. But let's return to the topic of Ho Shao Shen to get started, Adam. With The Assassin as your sole example, how would you describe Ho's method of filmmaking? And did you find it to be as entrancing as the can jury that honored him with this year's directing award? Well, entrancing is a great place to start. Deliberate is another word that certainly comes to mind. Painterly, which I use with some reservation considering it might undercut just how cinematic this film is to compare it to another visual medium. But this isn't just about light and shadow and framing. It's really about colors and how they provide a sort of tableau. And really, there are few filmmakers I can compare him to just based on this one film in terms of using the full expanse of the mise-en-scene. Every aspect of what appears in the frame is utilized. Precise is another word I would use, and mysterious, too. I think with this film, I would also use the word confusing and Maybe it's just because I watched it really late at night and I was tired, but I do think this movie is complex enough that it demands a second viewing, and I think it's ultimately rich enough that it would reward a second viewing. The broad strokes of the story are not hard to follow. I think you did lay it out and summarize it nicely there in your setup, but exactly who everyone is in relation to each other at all times, scene to scene, what their motivations are, that's all a little harder to follow. I think there is a fair amount of politics and procedure here, you would have to say. Complicating things further, you touched on our protagonist. You have a hero here, a heroine here in The Assassin, who is almost all action and very few words. She doesn't emote for most of the movie at all. And in fact, the first time we do see her emote... When she's told a story about her past, she actually brings up her robe and covers her face in black. And we can tell that she's probably crying, but we don't actually get to see her cry. And you also have a story here filled with little stories. Characters often use parables to express themselves. So there's a bit of distance inherent in that. If you're already trying to keep everyone straight, now you've got new twists and new characters to consider. And the meaning and the symbolism is sometimes elusive. That's the reaction I had anyway. But All that said, again, that might demand you to watch it again, but on that first viewing even, there's enough just in the visual style and the deliberate style of this film to make it worth my time, certainly. And I think we could touch on the black and white in more detail of that opening, and we probably will, but once the color kicks in, you can pick out almost any frame in this movie and Every color is utilized. I can think of other filmmakers who often want to restrict their palette a little bit. They pick a certain visual scheme and they stick to that. And that can be beautiful, too, of course. But 
This isn't just about utilizing certain temperatures or hues. It's every color. Yellows, orange, blue, green, white, warm and cold, dark and light. Really, every facet of life is brought to life on screen with those colors. That's a great observation. I didn't think about that, but you're absolutely right. It's almost as if Ho's taking what he's given in nature and working with that rather than imposing any sort of scheme upon it. And mm-hmm. then that trickles, those are in the landscape sequences, of course, but then that trickles into these exquisite interiors, which we also get. I think that description of this film and his work in it is completely fair. Um, confusing, I will give you. And I was more forgiving on that front because I felt, and I think this is what you're getting at too, the confusion was on my end. Mm-hmm. So to compare it to something like Wong Kar Wai's The Grandmaster, where I was somewhat, I was more familiar with Wong's films, but still somewhat out of my league in the history that was involved, there was a confusion there that I could tell was also part of the structure of the film. And I think others who even knew Wong's filmography better could point to that too. Here, any confusion was on my end. It was because I'm unfamiliar with the political machinations going on. Mm -hmm. I'm unfamiliar with the history being referenced to, and I'm unfamiliar with a lot of the historical cultural traditions that are being dutifully observed here, patiently observed. And without that, I I am strictly an observer. I'm not gaining much more information than that. So that's all It forces you to be very active. It does. It does. And I like that about Mm -hmm. it. So so the confusion was definitely there, but not to its detriment. And it's going to vary from audience member to audience member. I think painterly is the right word to use. It's an overused word. And I understand your caution. But the way it makes sense to me is because it seemed to me Ho is using all of these cinematic elements and not just the visual ones, I mean, even including sound design and the way they're interwoven and managed is as if he's doing it all with a paintbrush. Mm -hmm. It's so delicate. Precise is another word you used, which I think is accurate. There's such control here that you feel like you're in the hands of someone who's delicately painting a scene rather than doing what he's actually doing, which is corralling an entire cast and using all these other artists who have their specialties and putting that all together to create what is an absolutely sumptuous visual feast. You're listening to Film Spotting. We're discussing the latest film from Taiwanese master filmmaker Ho Shao Shen. I think there are a lot of individual scenes we could probably point to. There is one scene in particular in terms of using that mise-en-scene, using everything available to him, I think, where we have... The character that she is sent to kill, if I am following it correctly, who is with, I believe, his wife in a scene, and they are having what they believe is a private moment, except we know it's not private because the assassin is watching them. But we only know the assassin's watching them for at least half of the sequence because of the way point of view is used, the way the camera with the steady cam just gently glides along these curtains and that obscures where she is hiding it also obscures them so we're seeing them from her point of view and it really is just a marvel not only of point of view but of using a very shallow depth of field and despite that shallowness it's very layered so you've got these orbs of light right you've got these these candles, I guess, that are probably being obscured by... Through the curtains. Yeah, through the curtains. So that changes the way those look. So again, that's all about how we see things and how we perceive the world around us. So that layering and just that 
deliberateness again to the movement is really an amazing sequence. I think another thing that really struck me about this movie is that the biggest pleasures that I derived from it didn't come at all from what I expected them to. And despite what I know about Ho Shao Shen's reputation, I was still surprised because I know he's working within a genre, despite my lack of familiarity with it, that is based on these epic martial arts sequences. And I think it was someone actually in response to your comments on Letterboxd, Josh, mentioned that this was kind of a revisionist wuxia film or an anti-wuxia film. And again, we're not educated enough to really speak to that specifically. But I can only assume that that terminology is tied to how the violence here is choreographed and employed throughout the movie. Because again, for a genre that is built on martial arts and confrontation, and glorious scenes, breathtaking scenes, like we get in The Grandmaster, to go back to one we have seen and talked about here in the show, where you've got these amazing leaps and sword-fighting spectacles that become a sort of ballet. We revel in that. It's thrilling, and it's also beautiful. And it happens here in The Assassin, the way violence probably mostly occurs in the world, no matter what century it is, which is often in brutal bursts. So even when he does use some artifice, to amplify those sequences a little bit where Ho will cut the sound or he'll use slow motion or there's a certain elegance to her physicality. It's all a means to an end. That's something that really stood out to me. She is doing her job, really what she is programmed on some level to do, and she just does it as efficiently as possible. So I would never tell anyone who is listening to us right now that you really need to go watch The Assassin to see the fight scenes. I'd say you need to go to see the chamber sequences, which is counter to everything I believe anyway a wuxia film typically stands for. They're almost downplayed, and that's not to negate the beauty of them or the choreography going on in them, but they are Asides in this picture. They come up unexpectedly. One of them is filmed in long shot, I believe, across a pond or Mm -hmm. a lake. So we can hardly even tell what's going on. And I think that does capture, yeah, the the spontaneity of them. Um, It keeps us off guard, but it also doesn't elevate them above maybe where violence should be in this story. Mm -hmm. And it puts it perhaps in its proper place. There are two scenes in this movie that I wanted to make sure we talked about, and you hit on one already. Mm -hmm. The curtains and the candles and Nian Yong watching them from behind. It took me a while to realize. You mentioned how we know it's her point of view because of how the camera moves. Mm -hmm. And it took me a while in this film to realize that that is what Ho was doing, where every sequence we'd almost quietly enter into, we wouldn't be there. Yeah, that's a good point. To the side, and we'd we're seeing a certain perspective. Eventually, I realized, okay, this is this is her. Maybe not in every scene, but the camera is mimicking her and how she moves, and it does all come together in that beautiful scene that it just uses drifting curtains from the wind. How often is the wind employed in this mm-hmm. movie? I mean, every scene, even the interiors, it's used somehow, and especially in this one, so that they do blow back and forth in front of the lens. And again, it's just this idea of she's there still. And she's not going to move any more than she has to. If the wind blows the curtain and obscures her vision, she's going to wait patiently until it blows aside and she can see what she wants to see. And, of course, it also reveals her at the climax of that scene. And Mm -hmm. the climax of that scene, we should say, is another fight sequence where she has a confrontation with her cousin. And what I liked about that, and this is another element of the fight scenes, so much more is being communicated in those than just who wins or loses. And this is a case in point. Her sole purpose there, and he even says it, is to reveal herself Mm -hmm. and to let him know that, yes, there's an assassin on his trail, but it's also 
his cousin right. who knows him and that there is this tension of whether or not she's going to carry through. So I think if you look at each of the violent confrontations in this film, except maybe the opening one where we see her lethality, all the others, there's some sort of mind game at play that goes far beyond whether or not the one person is going to be defeated mm-hmm. by the other. The other scene I want to make sure we get to comes near the end, and I don't think it's giving too much away. It is a conversation between Nin Young and her master. Right. And she's somewhat made her decision at this point, and they don't even really look at each other. It's atop this mountain on a cliffside, and the way that Ho manages to summon the fog. I, I, I haven't found out yet if there's any digital trickery at work here. I can here. tell you. Okay. Tell me, because I'm really hoping not, but there had to have been. The fog is very, it's down below in the valley when we first see the sequence. And again, Mm -hmm. this is like a two-minute, perhaps a three-minute single take. And as Nyan Young comes up to meet her master, they have a few words. It's not exactly what the master wants to hear. And this fog, this mist just grows Mm -hmm. and essentially grows until it's swirling around the entire mountaintop, leaving pretty much just the master shown. And it's it's magical. It's the second scene, aside from the curtain one, where you just watch with your mouth falling open in this movie. Please tell me there was no digital trickery involved. I guess and it yet, doesn't matter. No, it really doesn't matter, despite everything you're saying and how artificial it seems as if the director summoned it. The fact is, it's natural. It's organic. It just unfolded that way and his cameras captured it. Wow. And I learned that from reading an interview with Ho Shao Shen that our friend Peter Labuza actually did for Filmmaker Magazine or at least Filmmaker.com, their website. And another thing that stood out to me, Josh, in that conversation is here I was thinking about how much I loved the nature of those fight scenes and how clipped they were and how they weren't glorified. And one of Peter's questions was about that. And of course, the filmmaker pretty much shot down any grand notions there in terms of theme. And he just said, well, it's one of practicality. He said that the reason why they didn't use a lot of long takes and draw those fight scenes out was because the actors weren't professional fighters or martial artists. And so they weren't used to doing those kinds of scenes. So they had to break things up a bit more. So there's probably some truth to that. There's probably some truth as well, I think, to what we're getting at in terms of at least how it plays out, that the violence is not the ultimate goal of this film. It's not what the movie is about. It is just, as I said, a means to an end. And sometimes that that end is just to communicate something. It's just to express something and it can only be expressed or that conversation can only start with some kind of physical confrontation. But I was thinking the same thing about those clouds and hoping they were real. And if they did give an Oscar for best use of clouds in cinema, (laughs) it would be a very tough battle. I don't think you've seen this one yet, but it'd be a tough competition this year between the end of this film and the end of Olivier Assayas is The Clouds of Sils Maria. Well, it's right Just there in the title. A majestic. So it it's there in the win. title. It's it's pretty magical as well, the end of that film, which does also, as I understand it, just happen naturally. So about Shu Chi, because I was unfamiliar with much of her work as well before seeing this film. And it's really one of these silent movie performances in a sense that there's not a lot of dialogue. Yet silent movie performances are also we think of as emotive and big. And this is very still and measured. And you may wonder How is she going to get much across in that way? And I love the moment you mentioned where she puts the cloth over her face, almost Mm -hmm. almost as if she's saying, this could be my big moment, my big acting moment, and I'm going to turn it down. I'm I'm not going to 
take the opportunity. And and she doesn't need to because I think this tension that I'm talking about of is she going to – whose order is she going to follow, her own or her master's? And what does that mean for the larger political landscape at play here? All of that comes across not only in her movements, which we've talked about how the camera aids the performance as well, but in the minimal expression she does give us. Once she's been given this assignment involving her cousin, you can see she has that that air and that expression, that demeanor of someone who is in a physical space in body but not in spirit. Mm-hmm. There is this detachment, even as her professionalism does not drop at all. And she's clearly the most skilled fighter in all of the confrontations. There's something drawn from her face in terms of the commitment to what she's doing. And I think that's really all of the emotion we need to make it register for what the story is trying to do. The Assassin is currently out in limited release. If you see it and agree or disagree with our takes, you can email us feedback at filmspotting.net. Film spotting poll time is next. If David Gordon Green feels bruised over last weekend's box office results for Our Brand is Crisis, I'm afraid our poll is only going to pour salt into his wounds. Then Adam, the more dutiful host this week, will share his thoughts on Paul Thomas Anderson's new documentary, Junoon. Stay with us. I'm often told to express myself before I forget and just write it down. But here I am with my foot on the gas And there's not a pen or paper around All I know is all I'm told I'm just no good at poetry Switches gears with a grinding sound. Information is all. Is it not? For example, you must know by now that the double O program is officially dead. <laughs> Which leads me to speculate exactly why you came. So, James, why did you come? I came here to kill you. And I thought you came here to die. For a group of folks who haven't come out on top in over 50 years, Bond villains are a cocky bunch. Welcome back to Film Spotting. Christoph Waltz, who was probably born to play a Bond villain, most of us would agree. And Daniel Craig in that clip from Bond 24, also known as Spectre. Spectre opened to big box office overseas last weekend. It opens here in the States this weekend. We are going to share our thoughts on the movie next week, along with the top five and... I'm learning this for the first time based on the notes in front of me. I think this new system our co-producer Sam is trying to instill for us to communicate better is not working (laughs) because I wasn't aware of this top five. Really? We were kicking around, or at least you guys were kicking around, top five Bond stuff. Well, we're trying to find a place where we can just talk about things without you. Might as well put that out there I'm all for it. (laughs) It can only help the show, Josh. Okay, Bond stuff. You threw out ephemera. Well, that doesn't really capture that. I mean, that's like means temporary. And I'm thinking of the things that we remember that have lasted for years from all the Bond films. Goodies, maybe Mm. call it Bond goodies. I'm going to upset and disappoint a lot of our listeners when I say that any top five devoted to Bond probably isn't going to work for me. (laughs) 
I'm well, just. Well, what are we talking? About? I'm just see, not. Do you see why we need the private space devoted enough to we, the series, to the franchise? I just don't okay. know it well enough. Okay, but this this is a fun way to go about it. So we're talking about gadgets. We're talking about the layers, the villains' layers. We're talking about vehicles. At first, I thought swimsuits. Are we talking about swimsuits? It, it could be swimsuits. I like that. Okay. That, see, you're in, aren't you? You're in. <laughs> Ursula and dress. That's about all I know. I was about... thinking Daniel Craig. But... Well. <laughs> I'm not going to argue with you there, Josh. We'll see which top five we do land on or which top five Josh and Sam come up with behind the scenes on next week's show. If you have any good ideas, we're always open to those ideas. Feedback at filmspotting.net. And as we are going to go full bond next week, we do have in just a little bit an unusual 007 related poll question. A whole new category of time wasting was involved in the development of that poll. So you don't want to miss it. Stay tuned for that. First, a couple of notes. We are always happy when we can give away some free passes to our Chicago-based listeners and the new film starring one of my favorite actresses. I know you're a big fan of her work as well, Carrie Mulligan. She's in the new film Suffragette. That is out now. And we have run of engagement passes. So anytime while it's playing here in Chicago, you can use your pass to go see it for free. We have information about that at our website, filmspotting.net. We also have a link where you can enter to see the new movie Spotlight in advance of its release. This is a new film about the Boston Globe's investigative reporting into the Catholic Church abuse scandal. Michael Keaton, Rachel McAdams, Mark Ruffalo, and Liev Schreiber star among others in that ensemble. I'm excited to see Spotlight, and if you are as well, again, you can enter at filmspotting.net to see it in advance. It's been a couple weeks since we mentioned Paul Thomas Anderson's new doc, Junoon, long enough, hopefully, Josh, to pretend we pronounced it correctly the whole time. Let's just move along. <laughs> we may Don't get to that later. <laughs> Junoon was given its worldwide online debut via movie.com back in October, and now we're mentioning it again because you've only got until just before midnight on Saturday, November 7th to watch it. So if you're listening here in Chicago on the radio, Friday or Saturday night, you could, in theory, stop listening and still have time to watch it. It only runs about 50 minutes. For our podcast listeners, we have no way of knowing when you're listening. It could be months from now for all we know. We'll still share a few thoughts. At least I'll share a few thoughts and have a little dialogue with some of our listeners who have seen it, Josh, a bit later in this segment. We will link to Mubi and to Junoon in the show notes at filmspotting.net. What exactly is your problem? You cannot even enjoy yourself for one moment. My quest affords me no such luxury. Not even on a tender night like this. The moon's glimmering. On a night just like this, I return home from a hunt to find a bloodbath. Nothing remained of my six beloved brothers. I wear this bracelet, forged of the steel of their shields, as a constant reminder of my vow to avenge them. My only advice would just be to keep your head up, hang in there, live every day to the fullest, have sex as much as you can by campfire when you're all alone and your brother is out gathering wood. Just simple things like that. That is great advice. Unfortunately, nobody advised David Gordon Green not to make Your Highness, which may have cost him not one but two decisive deathmatch losses here in the film spotting poll. That was Danny McBride and Natalie Portman in Green's infamous 2011 flop. And this past weekend, not that we really care much about such things, Josh, Green's latest film, The Political Consultants in Bolivia movie with Sandra Bullock, Our Brand is Crisis, was also declared a bomb by people who apparently do care about such things. So we're going to say this right up front, David Gordon Green. We appreciate your work. It's not personal. Good luck getting him back on the show for <laughs> yeah, an no kidding. After I this. had such a good conversation with him <laughs> about his movie it. Joe. Yeah, he's never coming back on. A couple of weeks back, Josh and guest host Michael Phillips introduced this first director death match. It was David Gordon Green versus Take Shelters, Jeff Nichols. I had a feeling 
Mr. Nichols, a favorite here on the show, has only made three films so far, but they're three favorites of mine, three favorites of many listeners. I had a feeling he would do well. I didn't know it would be this big of a drubbing. The results, Josh. 80% for Jeff Nichols and only 20% for hmm. David Gordon Green. So unfortunately, we didn't let things die there. We will get to part two in a moment. First, some feedback. John DeCesaro in Wichita, Kansas, wrote in, The cursor on my screen went back and forth to each name shakily. It seems unfair to pit these young, talented filmmakers against each other. In the end, this was a quality over quantity decision. Nichols' directing record has no false steps, with each of his first three films exploring masculinity in interesting ways. David Gordon Green has made some strong movies, but has more questionable entries in his filmography. What makes this tough is that each filmmaker's triumphs compel me to see their next movie, no matter what it is. However, my expectations expectations are much higher for Nichols, and thus he has my vote. It is nice to think that this kind of struggle was more or less what many listeners went through, despite the definitive results in Nichols' favor. So maybe You're just trying to there, wasn't such, good side there wasn't such wrestling going on as we heard there from John. We also heard from Scott Gentry in Barkingside, UK. An intriguing storyteller, Jeff Nichols has produced outstanding works such as Mud and Take Shelter in a relatively short space of time, becoming a fresh voice within the indie scene which means he has a lot to contribute, yes? Whereas David Gordon Green continues to provide subpar features followed by intermittent hits. It's simple. Would I rather see a genre-breaking film from Jeff Nichols every three to four years or wade through a number of painstaking failures from Green, Your Highness the Sitter, until he is able to provide us with another hit? I can't wait. I'm with Nichols all the way. But I'm losing my patience in regards to the release of Midnight Special. Seriously, I take that over Star Wars <laughs> The Force Awakens any day. I love it. I love it. According to IMDb, which at this point we can't put any special trust in, the current release date for Midnight Special is March 18th, 2016. But it was supposed to be not only a 2015 release, it was supposed to be a 2014 release. So I'll believe it when I see it. Exactly. Ryan in Chicago says Green is unfairly judged by the sitter and your highness, while his truly great films are barely mentioned. All the real girls, Undertow and Snow Angels, are criminally underseen and undervalued. Here's a tough question. Is all the real girls, and maybe I should have considered this when I voted, Green's best film for me, it is. Is I think it so better too. than Nichols' best film, which for me is Take no. Shelter? No. No. I'm going mm. Take Shelter. I can't answer right now. Matt in Portland, Oregon says David Gordon Green's triumphs, and they are triumphant, make his forays into stupidity, example given the sitter, correspondingly unforgivable. Jeff Nichols, on the other hand, is batting a thousand. Ring the bell. This death match is over. Corey H. in Moscow closes us out. David Gordon Green was a producer on Shotgun Stories, you knuckleheads. Jeff Nichols owes a debt of gratitude and a small part of his career to this guy. How y'all going to do him like that? If you kill off Green, you've at least got to lop off one of Nichols' toes or something. Good point. I forgot that they are connected, and David Gordon Green was the producer of Nichols' first film, which I love, Shotgun Story. So we really can't get rid of David Gordon Green without also losing part of Mr. Nichols. I'm with you, Corey, on that. So that puts aside that deathmatch, but then we couldn't resist to have Deathmatch 2.0, the battle of the Davids. And we threw in another filmmaker to replace Jeff Nichols, who seems to have a somewhat similar career trajectory to David Gordon Green, and that was David O. Russell. He made some beloved early stuff like Flirting with Disaster, Three Kings, I Heart Huckabees before going Hollywood with The Fighter and Silver Linings Playbook and American Hustle. Of course, he's had a lot more success in Hollywood just objectively in terms of box office and also accolades and awards than Green, which made this death match no less of a bloodbath than the first one, right, Josh? It's a little bit closer. Yeah. 73% for Russell compared to 27% for Green. Maybe if we find, like, by the 10th time we do this, we'll find someone <laughs> who it will be a little closer to. Maybe. Let's go ahead and kick off the feedback with this great voicemail. Hey, guys. It's Isaac from Kansas. 
Uh, I just have one question. Don't you people know when a man has had enough? I mean, David Gordon Green isn't a bad director at all, but he's never been able to get his vision across nearly as well as Jeff Nichols or David O'Russell especially. I mean, what's next exactly? Are we going to pit him against Scorsese and Kubrick maybe? Tell you what, go ahead and in the next poll, ask people which they preferred, the creation of Fire or David Gordon Green. You guys are getting into J.K. Rowling, George Lucas territory with these polls. You have to change everything, and you have to tweak everything and adjust it. When will the bloodshed end? Are you not entertained? Other than that, you guys are doing a great job. Keep up the good work. Well, I think that's the first time we've ever been compared to George Lucas. So <laughs> thank you, Isaac, for that. Brett in Boston wrote in as well. It was odd to hear that you thought this was a more even matchup than Green versus Nichols. This is all rather subjective, of course. But David O. Russell's films are more consistently high quality than Green's. And quite simply, more people have seen the best of them. Green's most seen film is probably Pineapple Express, which is generally not considered his creative peak. A better matchup would have been Russell against Jeff Nichols, which would pit Russell's bolder improvisational big name efforts against Nichols' smaller, more personal classic style. Maybe that would have made more sense. That didn't really tie in with David Gordon Green, and we do have Film Spotting Madness Director's Edition coming in March. Maybe we'll get to that, Brett. Bennett in Kirkland, New York, said, I wasn't surprised to see Nichols whoop on Green. But this, this is shocking. David Gordon Green may be the poster boy for diminishing returns, but I'll take him over the recently appointed poster boy for competently acted but altogether soulless awards bait any day of the week. Wow. Jack in Film Spotting East, Arlington, Virginia. For the life of me, I don't get how Russell wormed his way into the auteur discussion. Since Three Kings, he has shown a propensity for polish in films that are well executed but ultimately soulless. There you go. Soulless. Again, being just thrown around with the work of David O. Russell. If the band Rush were a filmmaker, it would be David O. Russell. Well, I happen to love Rush, I was just so gonna those say, are fighting words, Jack. <laughs> that hurts, doesn't it? <laughs> Max O'Connell from Rapid City, South Dakota said, I'm surprised that this is as much of a landslide as it is. Granted, if it were just Russell's first four films versus Green's filmography, I'd really have no trouble making up my mind. Three Kings and I Heart Huckabees are head and shoulders my favorite films either of them have made. But I'm also taking into consideration recent output, and though I've liked some of Russell's Oscar-friendly work well enough, none of his more recent films have stuck with me. And worse, Russell has said in interviews that he thinks those recent films are the ones he's been building to while speaking ill of I Heart Huckabees. Lame as I thought our brand is Crisis and Manglehorn were, Green has put out more engaged work as of late with Joe and Prince Avalanche. And I'd take the best of his big comedies, Pineapple Express, over any of Russell's prestige movies. If it were just a matter of best work either of them have done, I'd go with Russell. But if I'm putting money on who I think is more likely to make another very good to great film soon, I have to go with Green. So that's where my vote falls. Max was the one who suggested David O. Russell when Sam initially put the Green Deathmatch idea out on Twitter, and we appreciate his comments. I think he actually convinced me here. I think against Russell, I would go David Gordon Green just because I'm more curious to see what he will do next. I think he has a greater chance of making a great film than David O. Russell. As much as I like Three Kings, of all the films both filmmakers have made, that would be my favorite. And I, too, didn't care much for Manglehorn, but I like Joe. I like Prince Avalanche. So I think David Gordon Green still has something left in him. I'm still curious about his work. I think he definitely does, but I've been higher on Russell's more recent stuff than you have. I, I'm not yes. part of this David O. Russell defamatory bandwagon that seems to be going on. Okay, well, that brings us to this week's poll question in which you get to cast a film that doesn't exist and 
very likely never will exist. It's called Son of Bond or Daughter of Bond, depending on how you choose to cast it. Or as friend of the show, Chris Klemek suggested via Twitter, the ties that bond or quantum of paterfamilias. Nice. Well done, Chris. The premise, courtesy of Sam, the child Bond ever knew he had grows up to despise his absent father, of course, and is trained by Spectre or whomever to kill Bond. How does this not exist yet, Josh? Not because it's so brilliant, but because it's just such an obvious concept. To help you pretend that this is a real thing, we actually got a quick three-act treatment from an anonymous screenwriter friend of ours. Josh, you want to do the honors? All right, here we go. Act one, Bond gets a new mission, tracks down a mystery operative who's revealed to be his son or daughter. In Act 2, Bond gets to know him or her. Could they work together? Spectre causes some trouble. The son or daughter is revealed to be Spectre at midpoint. Bond's unsure of how to stop the son or daughter short of murder. Spectre is winning. In Act 3, Bond uncovers the root of the son or daughter's pain, makes up for it. Now the question is, who will the son or daughter be more loyal to, Spectre or the father? So I hate to break it to you, but there are no film spotting paychecks this month because that treatment cost us seven figures. Well worth it. <laughs> of course it was. Naturally, the movie ends with that son or daughter being named the new 007, or maybe that's a post credit sequence. Anyway, that's your movie. It's up to you to cast it. The actors were giving you some of our favorite 25 and unders, and for the sake of familiarity and a decent pool to choose from, we have included UK and American actors. Come on, it seems likely that Bond got cozy with his share of Yanks over the years. I've Very seen enough likely. Bond films to know that, Josh. So we had to whittle this down a little bit. We have six final candidates, three men, three women, and I'm sure we're going to get some great other options as well. Who would you cast as son of slash daughter of James Bond? Nicholas Holt. Jack O'Connell, Miles Teller, Saoirse Ronan, Alicia Vikander, or Emma Watson. Or other. If you don't like any of those options, you can write in a candidate. But I think there's some really good options there. Do you have a gut feeling? The correct answer is probably Jack O'Connell. Yes. But I would really like to see Emma Watson's Daughter of Bond. I, I just, it doesn't make a lot of sense. No. Which is kind of why I'd like to but see But she's it. spunky. I she's talented. She, I think she's very talented. And I think she might be awfully subversive in the role, find ways to be subversive, and maybe make up for some of the earlier Bond films. Hmm. We know Saoirse Ronan can do the spy thing. True. And the ass-kicking thing after the film Hannah, which is a film I liked very much. Directed by Joe Wright. Of course, Joe Wright also directed Saoirse Ronan in one of my favorites, Atonement. And he directed Alicia Vikander in the less successful but visually stunning Anna Karenina. We also just signed him for Daughter of Bond, so no paychecks <laughs> He's all going year. to direct it. He could do it. He would be a good candidate for that. That's the 2.0 version of this question. Who will direct Son oh, of Daughter of Bond when one all of these performers just starts killing everyone else? <laughs> I like it. I'm glad we already figured this out. A little pre-next week's show meeting. Vote now at filmspotting.net. And if you leave a comment, and we hope you do, please let us know where you're listening from. Rocket, 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 me Elohim. Rocket, 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 me Elohim. Rocket, 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 me Elohim. So we've been putting this off for weeks, and I finally had some free moments. I was actually, Josh, on the Metra. I was riding in from the suburbs to go to a Bears game on Sunday, and I saw 
an email about how Junoon, the new documentary, 54-minute documentary directed by Paul Thomas Anderson, was expiring on Mubi this weekend. And I thought, I've actually got some time to kill. Never ideal to watch a movie on your iPhone. But if that's all you got in front of you and you got a decent connection and you can stream the movie, and I could... That was my time to sit is there this, and do nothing else but focus on that film. Is this going to be your quote on the poster? You can fit it in on the Metra. <laughs> I love a movie that's under an hour long. So I fit it in on the Metra. It did take me a little bit of a return trip as well. This is PTA's film documenting the making of an album in India by Indian musicians and also the Israeli composer Shai Ben-Zur and the English composer and Radiohead guitarist Johnny Greenwood, who, of course, he has collaborated with on many of the scores for his own films. Radiohead producer Nigel Godrich also part of this collaboration. And we have been meaning to talk about this for weeks ever since it debuted on Mubi. I just now caught up with it. Since we can't really have a conversation about it, Josh, we do have two great emails from listeners here. I thought we would go ahead and let them spark the conversation. Jen in Sunnyvale, California writes in, I wanted to share my experience watching the new PTA Junoon with you. After watching it via Mubi, I quickly went to iTunes and downloaded the music. The one song that is available now, Roked, and that's what you heard there in the trailer that we played, is one of my favorites. I added it to my slowly growing kid playlist that has non-inane songs that can also be played for my eight-year-old. He loved it, and while we were working on a long-term craft project later that evening, you know, as you do, Josh, we watched the film together. Long-term craft projects. <laughs> it amazed me how much he enjoyed it. He was wowed by the music, but he also noticed things that I never noticed while watching it the first time, like when the credits roll and he immediately goes, "Oh, that was shot on a drone." I respond, "What?" What? That was a little over a week ago, and we watched it again tonight since the film is expiring, and I'm pretty sure that they show a drone flying around. He made all sorts of funny and interesting comments while watching this, and it ended up being a totally unexpected and engaging film experience. And it's not like he's usually watching silent films and Miyazaki in his spare time. He likes Minions and Star Wars like everyone else. Anyway, my eight-year-old's film and music horizons have been broadened considerably, and we both can't wait until the whole album is released. So a couple things there that I wanted to jump off from one of them being that the music is spectacular and was totally unfamiliar to me. And I do have a feeling that if you're not wowed by the music at all, if it doesn't move you at all, then this is going to be a pretty empty experience for you because it really is just an immersive treatment where you are thrown into this recording space with these performers. And there's no real backstory. A lot of times you're not even sure who the people are, who kind of the main people might be, and I'll touch on that a little bit more. You can sort of make out who Johnny Greenwood must be, because, of course, he and Shai Benzur stand out just in terms of their look from the other performers, but otherwise, there's really no narrative. It is about the music, and it's about the act of performance and the way PTA captures that. And the mention of the drone, that's the other thing with this movie. It really is an experiment. It's very clear that... Paul Thomas Anderson was using this as an opportunity to play with a lot of gadgets and just explore different ways of making a documentary. So there are times where we get a lot of these great overhead shots, and I'm watching it too thinking, well, this was probably shot on a drone. PTA was probably out there himself maneuvering that thing. And then at one point, another camera does capture the drone. He has no problem showing you that process. Or there's another moment, Josh, where he starts outside of the room where they're performing, and we're watching the musicians only through these archways. And then he gets up and moves the camera over to another archway. And he doesn't cut. He doesn't do it with a nice glide. There's no steady camera or anything like that. He just picks up the camera and moves it. And he leaves in that whole process of kind of the walking and the shaky camera. So again, just very clear that he's having some fun with trying different modes of filmmaking. 
Another listener who managed to see Janun is John DeCarly from Worcester, Massachusetts. He wrote about this on his website, filmcapsule.com. I've begun to notice an unabashed strain of humanism in Paul Thomas Anderson's recent output, an emotional underpinning to the director's technical virtuosity that has made his work sing in new and exciting ways. Beginning with the warm, empathetic, and open-hearted coda of the master and continuing through the aching and tender nostalgia of inherent vice, this breath of benevolence in PTA's most mature films finds its purest expression in the positively lovely Junoon. Issuing a buttoned-up formality that would have been singularly unsuited to the project, Anderson instead concentrates on the beat of his experience as a traveler, the rhythm of life, and the assemblage of personalities surrounding the music. As a result, Junoon may at times feel minor or tossed off, handheld cameras bounce and lose focus, equipment is not hidden from the frame, but there's a spirit and a verve to the film that more than compensates. There's also a deceptive sophistication to the editing and construction of the piece that communicates in its own unassuming way the disorienting and collaborative experience of both travel and music. Very well said, John. We will link to John's full comments over at filmcapsule.com in our show notes. And the line there about his humanism struck me, Josh, because I go back to last week, we were talking about Edward Scissorhands, and I was comparing Wes Anderson to Tim Burton and their recurring themes and motifs of alienated misfits and the struggle with conformity and fitting into a community. And you pointed out as a joke, but actually very astutely, that it kind of sounds like Paul Thomas Anderson. And there's no doubt that there are some of those same connections and themes in his film. And I was thinking about it watching Junoon because as much as PTA's movies have been about those outsiders thrown into a new group, thrown into a new community, what stands out about Junoon is that there are no individuals. It is a room full of 20 to 25 people making music. And as I said, unless you knew who they were ahead of time, you wouldn't really know anybody by name, including who Johnny Greenwood was or some of these other people. The camera doesn't favor anybody over anybody else. It really is about the collective performing. And without each person doing their part, it doesn't work. It falls apart. And so I wonder if, whether consciously or not, that was something Paul Thomas Anderson was, again, sort of playing around with, was making a movie where the collective is much more important than the individual. Junoon, again, is streaming only through Saturday, November 7th on MUBI. And again, that's either very, very soon or already long past, depending on when you're listening to this right now. It disappears at midnight, and we don't really know when you're going to get a chance to see it again. But if you do, I do recommend it. More information at filmspotting.net. And see, I'm in sort of a time warp here. We're recording Tuesday night. I've, I've got like, what, five days yet. That's right. So plenty of time. You've got time. All right. How do you choose between Bergman and Brisson, Helmodovar and Lynch? The film spotting top five can best director winners is next. Stay with us. Hey folks, a quick interruption as we do want to get to a couple thank yous, recognize a few of our donors this week, Sarah in Washington, D.C., and Stephanie Naylor in Austin, Texas. I believe Stephanie listens regularly with her husband. Thank you, Stephanie and husband. Also, Blake Duff from Twin Falls, Idaho wrote in. 
I will be watching my 1,000th film, according to Letterboxd, this Thursday and wanted to donate in commemoration of that event. Self-indulgent, I know, but film has become quite a passion of mine over the last three years. From Charlie Chaplin doing his dance with dinner rolls in The Gold Rush to Jesse and Celine having meaningful, thought-provoking conversations in the before movies, cinema is made up of moments that stir up emotion as well as thought. And that is the exact reason I donated to your show, because film spotting has contributed greatly to the joy that film is and the dialogue film arouses. Thank you, everyone, for the show. Thank you, Blake. And congratulations on the milestone. Josh, you're still, what, 200 away from 1,000, I think? Pretty close. Okay. New $5 a month donors, Michael in Atlanta, Georgia, and John nearby in Joliet, Illinois. We also got Silver Club donations from Scott in Portland, Oregon, and Nick in Seattle, Washington. Imagine my joy after a tough day at work and then dealing with two toddlers. I'm driving back home one evening from my happy place, Home Depot, and I hear Josh say my name, pronounced perfectly, wow, that's rare, and read my comment about Red Dawn. He even pronounced as I imagined it when I typed the comment. I would have gotten that wrong, for sure. I didn't think my tongue-in-cheek analysis would get much notice, but to hear my name broadcast on my favorite show, well, it made my day. And then to hear cantankerous old Michael Phillips laugh at one of my jokes was icing on the cake. So thank you. I then realized, you know what? Film Spotting is one of my favorite shows. Certainly it's my favorite podcast, but honestly, it's also one of my favorite broadcasts in any medium. Out of all the options on Netflix, on the radio, on cable, I look forward to it every week as much as anything else. You both do an excellent job at providing thoughtful analysis, spirited but pleasant disagreements, and good humor. Listening to you takes me back to spirited discussions with good friends I had in school and makes me envious of your jobs. I hope you have another 10 years and that my donation helps achieve that. So you're welcome. (laughs) Thank you very much, Nick. I don't know. I think film spotting is okay. It's not quite as good as the History of the Eagles on Netflix, but... Oh it's all right. Goodness. It's all right. Have you finished that yet? I finished it. Oh, yeah. Congratulations. I devoured it. Thank you. Mark Lowenstein in Brookline, Mass. wrote in as well after giving us a Silver Club donation. Have been a big fan of the show for about five years. Just made what is now an annual donation. Mainly, I listen to your show while running or cycling. I estimate I have run nearly 1,000 miles listening to film spotting and cycled about 1,000 miles. Many thanks for many enjoyable and thought-provoking hours. Thought one fun idea for a top five or something for listener feedback might be top movie houses. Perhaps focus on indie movies movie houses rather than chains what are the places with great screens great sound good projection quality comfortable quirky etc i think to do that list we'll have to go on a film spotting road show i and like it. visit all of the nominees mm. first send us in your picks right now we'll get started on that we'll do live shows from all the theaters there's no reason why we can't pull this off right yeah. josh <laughs> thank you mark for the kind words, the donation, and the idea, even if we'll never get to it. Finally, a gold-level donation from a frequent donor here over the years. Thank you very much, Larry Carino in Pembroke Pines, Florida. So, Josh, that closes out donations. Indulge me for a second. I think listeners need to hear the story of how, what we, kept, story is this? Of how we kept mispronouncing Junoon. Oh, come on. It's pretty funny. It's pretty funny. And Sam won't mind. I'm not throwing him under the bus. It was both of us. We're both guilty in this. And I guess you're just guilty by association. Because well, you let us get away with it. So if people remember, going back about six weeks ago when this news broke that PTA's latest film was going to be shown on our partner movie, I'm looking at our notes for the week that Sam has put together. And there it says, Junjun. J-U-N, J-U-N. And it, it says after really it. really bad. It says in parentheses after it how to say it. Right. Junjun. Now, knowing all our problems over the years with mispronouncing words and just not fully trusting Sam, I thought if I'm going to say this and I have no idea how to say it at first glance, I'm going to look it up myself. So I Google J-U-N, J-U-N. I find pronunciation. And sure enough, it's Junjun. So 
two weeks in a row here on the show, I say that. Now, behind the scenes, here's a curious thing that is happening. Every time we mention it, I say, if you go to our show notes at filmspotting.net, we'll put a link to more information about this movie being on movie. Both weeks that I Google for more information to find a good link, I can't find anything. Like, hmm. I can't find a good link. I only why, find, like... Why could that be? Like, three websites, and none of them are Mubi, and I'm like, why isn't Mubi promoting this better? I was I was mystified by the whole thing. Okay, so after the second time, the tweets start coming in, and the emails start coming in, and people are telling us that we're pronouncing it wrong, that it's really Junoon. And, and I'm thinking, that doesn't even make sense. It's got the extra J in it, and I looked it up, and <laughs> Sam looked it up. What else could you have done? And so then that finally forced me to do a little bit more digging and I came across an article and saw for the first time that it was actually spelled J-U-N-U-N. So I wrote to Sam and I said, now Sam, can I actually put this on you? Because I mean, I'm the idiot who didn't really check for myself, but like you're the one who put it in the show notes the whole time you spelled it wrong. And that's where this all started. And he said, yep, totally me. And then he came back and pointed out that his problem was Google autocorrect. He was doing his own searches for the word, and it would autocorrect it to J-U-N-J-U-N. Oh, I thought he got a publicist's email that actually had it misspelled. That too. There are other examples of people misspelling it, even other articles online. I did find some articles. So we weren't alone, but there we were for two weeks, just not even mispronouncing it. it. We were saying the wrong word completely. it it was off. I say all this just to illustrate how pathetic we are and how, how we try. We really do try behind the scenes to get it right. And and even when we try, we still fail. Kind of makes it worse. I know. I think the point of this story is that in this case, I'm blameless. I was willing to take some of the blame, but now that I hear it all mm-hmm. laid out like that, I had nothing to do with it. Fair enough. Hi, my name's Steve Coogan, and you're listening to Film Spotting. This is Film Spotting, and it's top five time. The 2015 Cannes Film Festival screened its last film almost six months ago, but we're talking Cannes this week because the film that won the festival's Best Director Prize is finally getting released here in the States. We discussed Ho Shao Shen's The Assassin earlier in the show. As we get into our list here, I'm curious, did you factor in, we were talking about this a little bit over email, did you factor in what best direction means. I've always been one of those guys, I've said this over the years here, 10 years of doing film spotting, that I tend to be one of those people who gives the best director Oscar if I was bestowing it to the filmmaker who made the best picture, because I kind of think those go hand in hand. The Academy seems to like to split those up sometimes to give someone a little bit of love, maybe, if they're not going to get it in the best picture category. And maybe, maybe, they also tend to try to reward the director who seemed to show a little bit more virtuosity, which doesn't necessarily always equal. Yeah, that happens a lot. The I best think. picture or the best directing. So did you consider any of that when you were picking the five films, your five favorite films that have won the prize for best direction at Cannes? Well, I think it was considered by the juries themselves, because when you did look at this list and we were dealing with a very specific list here, you could see that these were mostly films, at least all the ones that I've seen, where the director's fingerprints were clear. Now, virtuosity, you could say, and sometimes that's bad. They're 
overshadowing the film or the story itself. But I think in all of these, we clearly saw a definitive director's touch at work. So I went essentially a little bit with the strategy you had. What Mm -hmm. of these films do I like the most? Do I appreciate the most? But then even as I picked those, I could see, oh, yeah, these are really strong directorial Mm -hmm. efforts. And we should also note before we get into the list that I believe this idea came to us from listener Alex Elms on Twitter. And I say that because we were struggling a little bit to find a tie-in with The Assassin, and this turned out to be a good one, Uh, one that involved a little bit of homework on our part, but uh, I'm glad we did it. I think it'll make for good Mm -hmm. ones. What's your number five? So I did put in overtime by watching a couple of films that I hadn't seen before, and this is one of them. It's all about my mother, Pedro Almodovar's 1999 melodrama that I think largely works as an argument for melodrama to be taken seriously, both as in his entire career form. probably does it that. It does, but this one especially struck me that way. Uh, you know, melodrama is a legitimate art form, he's arguing, and largely because it's truthful to our life experiences, as truthful as any other art form might be. In the film, Cecilia Roth plays Manuela, a nurse who works with organ donors. She also lives with her 18-year-old son, who's an aspiring writer. Now, after an accident, she's moved to reconnect with her son's father, who's now a transgender woman. This brings her into contact with all sorts of people, including a transgender prostitute played by Antonia San Juan, a troubled stage actress played by Marisa Paredes, and a pregnant nun played by a very young Penelope Cruz. There's the mania and the comedy of something like women on the verge of a nervous breakdown here. But I think there's an even deeper flowering of what you could feel in that movie, too, was this instinctual empathy for even the most outlandish of characters. I love how easily the people here fall into each other's melodramas and how they find real comfort and companionship there. It it suggests that the best way to care for someone simply is just to be there. Now, to get back to your question, you asked me at the start, what's best director about this? Because it can be hard when you're talking about emotional qualities like that to locate the technical choices that maybe result in those. Beyond the fact that Almodovar created that atmosphere, though, that allowed for this arena of empathy... It's worth saying that I think All About My Mother has some of his most dynamic compositions. Right away, I think of that great shot, the definitive shot of Manuela standing in front of the actress's billboard. Almost every scene has some sort of dynamic element like that. The visual scheme overall is electric. I mean, between the wallpaper and the paintings and the floor patterns in this movie, it's it's almost as if he he couldn't find a single uninteresting room mm-hmm. to set the picture in. So it's it's a bit like Elmodovar seems to believe there are no uninteresting lives. I'm so glad you had an excuse and you were compelled to catch up with that film. One of my favorites from our Pedro Almodovar marathon a few years ago here on Film Spotting before you joined the show, Josh. I think. We are in lockstep in terms of probably a couple of our choices. I know at least one, but also our approach, because while I did stick to my guns mostly in terms of thinking about the best picture, that question of director's touch, their fingerprint, was important to me. And considering movies where you simply know that no other filmmaker could have been responsible for them. And I think All About My Mother is one of them. There is no other filmmaker that could make that film but Pedro Almodovar. So that was my approach to this list. Couple disqualifiers here. Mulholland Drive, 
David Lynch. That's in the Pantheon, so not eligible for this list. And my penalty box has included for a while now the Coen Brothers film, Barton Fink. I also just decided to throw in Fargo as well. I love that film. The Coen Brothers get a lot of love here on Film Spotting, and as we noted at the top of the show, they're the only three-time Best Director winners at Cannes, so they really don't need any more accolades from Film Spotting and this list. My number five then, and it wasn't until I got all five of my picks together, Josh, that I realized that I had a really nice French bookend to my top five, complete serendipity. The movie is Rafifi, the 1955 Cannes Best Director winner, Jules Dassin. He actually shared it with Sergei Vasilev in a movie called Heroes of Shipka. This was a marathon film here on Film Spotting. We did, I think back in 2007, maybe 2008, our heist movie marathon and Rafifi might be the original it's the one that a lot of people point to as the original maybe the best heist movie it's a pretty familiar tale at this point now for ex-cons who come up with a plan to pull off one more big robbery and it takes place in Paris it was a big hit for Dassin, and as I said, has been incredibly influential in our marathon awards. It won my award for the best heist sequence and also best picture, though that was a tough battle with Le Cirque Le Rouge. The heist sequence, though, Josh, let's talk about direction and choices here. 28 minutes long, no dialogue, meticulously showing how they execute this caper. And the thieves don't talk at all, even though they could probably talk and not get caught. They could whisper or find some way to communicate with each other. Clearly, Dassin chooses to let it all unfold silently, I think, because it builds suspense and also because I think it just lends to this sense of professionalism, which is something that is obviously on display here in this sequence. They are really good at what they're doing. And so the work becomes musical almost. And actually, according to Ebert anyway, I discovered this during the marathon, the Paris police supposedly banned the movie for a time because they thought it was too much of a how-to manual. It was that meticulous and how it showed this caper. And when you watch it, it does compare nicely to some other more audacious high sequences that we've seen from so many films over the past several decades since Rafifi came out where they involve a little bit of luck and you look back on it later and you say, well... Could they really have pulled that off? Could those pieces have fallen right into place and the puzzle all come together the way they envisioned it? It's not that way with Rafifi. It really does seem like it would have happened exactly as they planned it. If you had this blueprint and you were as good as these men, as these criminals, it probably could be done if you had the patience for it. It could be done. So if you're a fan of heist movies and you haven't seen Rafifi, that's definitely something you need to remedy. All right. I couldn't set the Coens aside for this list, especially because this gave me the opportunity to talk about one of their more undersung films. I do love all three of their movies that received the Best Directing Award at can. Ranking them on Letterboxd, I have Fargo, Barton Fink, and The Man Who Wasn't There all in a bunch. And without watching them all in a row again, I can't really say there's much of a gap between them. So for variety's sake, I am going to pick The Man Who Wasn't There for this list. As I talked about when I named Miller's Crossing as the best film of 1990 last week, I don't see the Coen Brothers genre exercises as lesser efforts. And that's certainly not the case with this extremely dutiful recreation of period noir. It's complete with gorgeous black and white cinematography. Billy Bob Thornton plays a morose barber here, and he's a perennial pushover who devises this blackmailing scheme that unravels the lives of everyone around him. Doris and I went to church once a week, usually Tuesday night. Be nine. I, 29. Doris wasn't big on divine worship. I, 
and I doubt if she believed in life everlasting. She'd most likely tell you that our reward is on this earth, and bingo is probably the extent of it. Watch your card, honey. I wasn't crazy about the game, but I don't know. It made her happy, and I found the setting peaceful. It's a great performance. He's like this melancholy spirit who seems to be haunting his own life. But as to the direction, I feel like this is a point in the Coen's career that brought a new level of empathy to their characters, a willingness maybe to suffer alongside more than just snicker at the people on screen. I think that criticism of theirs is overplayed a lot, that they just laugh at their characters. But I do think with the man who wasn't there, you do see a development towards more of an understanding of them. And it is pitch perfect in technical terms. Uh, I've especially always value the man who wasn't there for the way uh, they just plop us right back in the films of that era. But it does represent, I think, a crucial step forward for Mm -hmm. them, too. My number four film, Josh, I thought I was going to sneak in here. There was no doubt it was going to be my pick, unique to me, and yet you had to go and do your homework and catch up on Almodovar. I am going with All About My Mother as well, which not only won him the Best Director Prize at Cannes in 99, but in 2000, it won him the Academy Award for Best Foreign Language Film. You spoke very eloquently about it. I'll just say, how could you not love any film that includes this dedication to Betty Davis, Jenna Rollins, Romy Schneider, to all actresses who have played actresses, to all women who act, to men who act and become women, to all people who want to become mothers, to my mother. I love that. And of course, Betty Davis is in there and Jenna Rollins and this movie owes a lot to opening night and it owes a lot to all about Eve and Almodovar isn't shy at all about wearing those influences on his sleeve, which is something I really appreciate about him. I also really appreciate the way reality and art collide in his movies. And during our marathon, we watched The Flower of My Secret, the 1995 film prior to this movie and the plot, the main storyline for this movie with Manuela is initiated in The Flower of My Secret, where we actually see these student doctors being trained in how to deal with grieving relatives after someone has died and try to get them to donate their organs. That's something that happens in that film, and then it plays out sort of the real version of that, the non-performance version of that plays out. And of course... A movie that is a performance, but when you watch it, you see how this character deals with that moment because of the rehearsal that has already happened. And as much as she handles it better than many of us might handle it in that moment, you do also see how different it is from the reenactment, how it's inevitably so much more upsetting and traumatic. And I think that Almodovar there is saying something about the power of art, and maybe that's why he dedicates it ultimately to actresses. I think that this stands out with his movies, where these movies and these performers are the people who get us ready for the tragedies of life and the joys of life as well. That's why we go to the movies. And so that suffering that happens on screen is something that we owe them a debt of gratitude for, even if it's quote unquote fake. Yeah, that's it. That's what, that's what I love about him. I mean, there are so many meta elements to a lot of Almodovar films, but even in this one, I feel like he flips the dynamic so that the meta touches are less about film or theater and more about real life. Yeah. Somehow he manages to get it working that way, mm-hmm. which is what I really love about them. At my number three pick, I have Nostalgia. This is the fourth Andrei Tarkovsky film that I've seen. It's from 1983. 
And I'm telling you, with each one that I'm able to catch up with, he's creeping higher on my list of all-time masters. In fact, it took me a while to get to this one because Solaris and Stalker are generally better regarded or they're discussed more at least. So I had thought that I'd already seen his best. But I think nostalgia is just as rich. It certainly is dense and worthy of multiple revisits. In it, a Russian poet played by Oleg Yankovsky has traveled to Italy with a translator played by Domiziana Giordano to research this famous spa town where a Russian composer visited in the 1700s. There he meets a religious fanatic who is obsessed with the end of the world, and he's played by the great Erlen Josephson, who starred in a number of Ingrid Bergman films, as well as one of Tarkovsky's other momentous works, The Sacrifice. This is less of a parable than The Sacrifice. It's more of a personal story, but it is still rife with Tarkovsky's heavy existential concerns, things like belief and truth, meaning, memory, and madness. Now, in terms of Tarkovsky's work as a director, I'm increasingly coming to appreciate his intricate, deliberate use of the camera. He employs these slow pans that reveal carefully calibrated compositions, and often they're full of more mystery than meaning. I think Ho Shao Shen works similarly in The Assassin, especially the way you described how the film worked for you, Adam. The opening scene here, Nostalgia, it's of this hooded woman and some children walking down a foggy hill toward a misty lake, also in black and white. It's like the assassin there before it shifts to color. Mm-hmm. It was the creepiest thing I saw over Halloween weekend, and I'm still not quite sure why. I do think in the way that Tarkovsky commands elements like fog and mist and water, there's so much water imagery here. I've begun to think of him more as a sorcerer than a filmmaker, really, and nostalgia's It's another astonishing spell that he's cast. My number three is a film from Michael Hanukkah. It is Cachet, the first Michael Hanukkah film that I saw back in 2005. Ultimately made my top 10 films of that year and made my top 20 films of the decade. It stars Daniel Otoy as George. He's a TV host and an intellectual and he's married to a character played by Juliette Binoche and he starts receiving packages that have videos of himself and his family and his residents and it really does just force them to wonder what they mean who is sending them why are they sending them what they're supposed to be looking for it becomes a story with much larger connotations where i think this man comes to symbolize an entire nation and how a nation deals with guilt and we see this crisis of conscience play out i mean there really is a huge macguffin here and that it's this plot device, these videotapes that are just there to be an entryway into the psychological and is highly open to interpretation. And one of those great films that at the end of the movie, people still go back and watch and scan that final frame looking for certain clues. And I love that about Cachet. And the film it makes me think of that's come out recently actually is Under the Skin, a movie we loved from last year. And what I said about that movie on Letterboxd after I saw it was that it was this provocative marriage of form and content that really achieved what is arguably the fundamental objective of cinema, and that is to compel the audience to see the world in a different way. And usually you're seeing the mundane, the everyday, the quotidian, and It's elevated somehow through the eyes of the filmmaker, and I think that applies to cachet as well. It really does force you, and force is probably the right word with Michael Haneke in one of his movies, to see the world in a different way, in challenging ways. 
Kasha, it's such a troubling film, and it was on my initial list and just got bumped down a little bit as things went on. At number two, I've got Punch Drunk Love, which I've discussed a number of times on the show before, seeing it is my favorite Paul Thomas Anderson picture. So I'll just be brief here and say that part of my reasoning for that ranking is I think he's in a really comfortable sweet spot with Punch Drunk Love. As a director, it's coming after the overreaching of Magnolia, though I like Magnolia, and then a little bit before the auteurist intensity of There Will Be Blood. And I really, really like There Will Be Blood, so I'm not putting either of those films down. There's just something loose and free about this musical romantic comedy that I love, even though it it is, I want to be clear, still supported by Anderson's formal genius. You can definitely see his hand at work here. Plus, I'm always going to treasure it for getting that performance out of Adam Sandler, which I always knew he could do, and I really doubt we'll ever see anything like that again. I didn't do anything. I'm a nice man. I mind my own business. So you tell me that's that before I beat the hell from you. I have so much strength in me, you have no idea. I have a love in my life. It makes me stronger than anything you can imagine. I would say that's that, Mattress Man. Punch Drug Love is a film I really do appreciate, but not as much as you, and not as much as our esteemed co-producer Sam Van Halgren, so I think it's one in badly need of a revisit for me. My number two is one I know that we esteem equally. In fact, I have a feeling it might come up here in a moment with you, Josh, and I'll let you do the honors, but I will say this about A Man Escaped, Robert Brisson, his film that won the Cannes Best Directing Prize in 1957. The third of three marathon films, we did a Brisson marathon, and I believe I started off that conversation by simply saying, it's a masterpiece, can we just add it to the Pantheon now? (laughs) And we probably should. And one of the things I discussed as I looked back at my notes was I compared it to Diary of a Country Priest, which was the first film in our marathon, and I made the argument probably a dubious one, that despite the amazing use of sound and off-screen sound in particular in Diary of a Country Priest, it's almost a silent film. It really is about Claude Ledoux's face and watching the anguish that he undergoes and his torment. With A Man Escaped, it certainly could not be a silent film. The sound is just as important as the visuals to the story because we have a man who is in prison, Fontaine. His world is static. He sees the same things every day and he's isolated. And so the only way He knows what's going on around him. And the only way we as viewers, because we're usually stuck in that cell with him, the only way we know what else is going on is through sound. And what that forces us to do is, like him, construct these images in our head. We really have to be engaged and use our imagination as viewers to try to make out what this prison looks like and what his plan might involve if he is actually going to escape. I love with Brisson's films how he always starts off with a little bit of text or narration or something that almost acts as a disclaimer that's like what you're going to see is just going to be very unadorned it's just going to be real life as if he as a director doesn't have his hands all over everything we're about to see and of course you realize quickly that his hands are all over it and that only Brisson could make these films but there is some truth to it you know that he is trying to show characters in highly dramatic, tense situations who are dealing with life as undramatically as possible. I think that's the way I described it during our marathon. There is a sense that this is life, and these characters take on almost an allegorical sense. They become larger figures who are 
emblems of all of us. The stakes are just that high in Brisson's films. And A Man Escape might be my favorite Brisson film, which is saying a lot. Yeah, I think you had it as the best picture of that marathon. Mm -hmm. And you're right. It is my number one here on this list. I think the only reason it wasn't my best picture there is because we also saw Alhazard Balthazar, which is among my top 10 of all time. Still, Man Escaped, good enough to top this list. So I think that's saying something about both films. And it does show a director in control of every single element of the art form. You picked up on the one that's perhaps most key here, though. It is the sound. It is such an audio experience from that chiseling that Fontaine does at his door to those execution gunshots that we hear in the distance and just continue to haunt the picture as it goes on. So the movie is built on these tactile elements. It is probably the definitive austere Brisson picture, to use that word that's so often thrown around with him. But I think he uses those tactile techniques to evoke so much more. So the end of this movie, it somehow registers. It's it's the flight of a soul as much as it is the escape of this specific person. Obviously can't argue with that pick at all. My number one is a movie that I know you also did some homework and caught up on Josh. And I don't know if you were just being nice and left it off your top five so I could talk about it, or you actually just decided it was an outlier. But I'm hoping that you'll enlighten us a little bit with your reaction to the film. It is The 400 Blows, Francois Truffaut, my French bookend here at number one from 1959. It won the Best Direction Prize at Cannes. And since this movie is fresher in your mind, you just saw it, Josh. I know you had a very favorable reaction to it. I'm going to throw it back to you. What did you like? What did you appreciate about The 400 Blows? What a performance, first of all, mm-hmm. right? Jean-Pierre Leo. Amazing. And it's it's that mixture of just being a naturally comfortable kid in front of the camera. Mm-hmm. So we we have this sense of um, he's a troublemaker, but maybe no more so than every other kid at that age is a troublemaker. He's also a responsible kid, and we see elements of that. And it's very impulsive, the performance, uh, where we're getting uh, expressions that feel natural. But there is that scene where he's interviewed by the psychologist mm-hmm. later on in the film, and it's by far the longest stretch of dialogue that he gets throughout the picture. And at that point, it just breaks your heart because there's bravado in there. Maybe I'd say uh, 80% bravado, but also the rest of it is just this aching need to be listened to Mm -hmm. and uh, to, to make some sort of connection because we've learned he doesn't have it at home from his parents. He doesn't have it at school where it's uh, more discipline than knowledge or instruction. And even the one friend that he has, they do form a connection. There's such a liveliness to this picture and we get it in that sequence where they're causing trouble together. But at the same time, the friend is not an influence that's going to lead him towards any sort of successful life. So here when he's with this psychologist, he's just putting it all out there. And I love how Truffaut, you know, just the directorial touches here as well. I love how he uses those dissolves to get this extended interview uninterrupted so we feel like we're really with this kid in the moment. Mm-hmm. So yeah, The 400 Below certainly lives up to its reputation. I had no quibbles about it. Just a number of other great films yeah. on this list. I Leo is so good. You're right. As Antoine Donnell, and it is Truffaut's debut film. Antoine would have made my characters on the fringe list, which was a top five we recently did, but he was actually on a very earlier show, my top five movie misfits, which was a very similar list. And nowhere does that bravado meet aching and have the aching win than in the police van sequence from the 400 blows where he finally has been actually arrested yeah, he for down. a crime and he breaks down this 
ride through the streets of Paris. It should be this romantic ride, and the music Truffaut chooses is ironically juxtaposed with him behind those bars, the tears streaming down his face, but this is a Paris that we should be watching two lovers in a car or as they're strolling down the Champs-Élysées, right, and seeing all the glorious lights and the shops and the people. This is a Paris that he probably was never a part of, and he's never going to be a part of, especially as he's going down the path that he's and he going down. ages backwards in that scene. It's mm. like, you know, he's always acting a few yeah. years older than he is, and he pulls that off. He's got that sort of face, but in that scene, somehow he just looks younger and younger and younger. Mm-hmm. And of course, one of the most famous endings of all time where he is sent to, like, a juvenile detention center, and it's near the water, it's outside of the city, and in this long tracking shot, Truffaut follows him, and I love it. I rewatched it today on YouTube because you get this overwhelming sense of exuberance, but also the aimlessness of youth, right? This infinite space of the world, the water, and how big it all seems, and he captures in these long shots, but then also the confinement of it. You do ultimately hit the water. You're at the beach. You can only go so much further. There are limitations. And I know you, Josh, you wrote nicely in your review on your website where you called that final freeze frame an act of mercy. And it is, right? It holds him in eternity. Even as we're going to get more Antoine Dunel films, we're going to see Jean-Pierre Leo grow before our eyes on camera. We will always be able to go back to this film and see him captured for eternity in that state, in that perfect bliss of exuberance, but also that that sense of aimlessness. It's a wonderful film. It just is a wonderful film. The 400 Blows is my number one can Best Director winner, and those are our top five Best Director winners. Josh, do you have any honorable mentions? 400 Blows, for the record, is probably number six. And yeah, I would have put Cachet on there, and Wings of Desire from Vim Vendors Mm -hmm. was one I strongly considered. A Few Regrets, I'll confess to you. I do too. Okay. Happy Together is a Wong Kar Wai picture that I have not seen. I've seen a number of others of his, but not that one. And let's not tell Michael Phillips this, but his beloved Nuri Bilga Jalan, who we both really like for Once Upon a Time in Anatolia. I haven't seen Three Monkeys. Yep. Yep. One in 2008. That was one of my two regrets. I mean, I have others, but the two biggest regrets, the two I most wanted to see before making my list were Three Monkeys and also another Brisson film, actually, L'Argent, 1983, I believe Brisson's last film. He shared the award, actually, Josh, with Tarkovsky that year. And I know Sam Smith, friend of the show from the Poster Boys podcast, is listening to this and he is still shaking his fists at his iPhone because he can't believe I still haven't caught up with L'Argent, which is a film he loved. Some of the other movies I did consider, you mentioned Wings of Desire, also Gus Van Sant's Elephant, Julian Schnabel's The Diving Bell and the Butterfly, Nicholas Winding Refn, he won for Drive, and go with my boy Werner Herzog and Fitzcarraldo. There are, of course, other options that were worthy of consideration as well, but those were the toughest to leave off my list. We want to know which films would have made your list. Send us your picks or any other comments about the show, feedback at filmspotting.net. You can also leave us a voicemail at 312-264-0744. On Twitter, find us at filmspotting, that's Adam, at Larson on Film, that's me. We're also at facebook.com slash filmspotting. Over at filmspotting.net, you can find 10 years of reviews, marathons, interviews, and top fives in the show archives. And while you're there, take a moment and vote in the current film spotting poll. Who would you cast in the completely non-existent Bond sequel slash spinoff, The Son or Daughter of Bond? 
beyond. And please check out our sister podcast, Film Spotting SVU, a bi-weekly podcast hosted by Allison Wilmore and Matt Singer, focusing on the world of online movies. More at filmspotting.net or filmspottingsvu.com. Just saw today, Josh, that NPR and their new feature, Earbud, where they have various people, some celebrities, musicians, other performers, and also just regular folks recommending their favorite podcast. Film Spotting SVU got some love. Really? On Earbud. So awesome. congrats to Matt and Allison for that. Out in limited release, I know we're both curious about Actually, I think you saw I Smile Back. Is that true, Josh? At Sundance. The Sarah Silverman movie. Yes, here you go. A dismantling of denial with a very strong Silverman. Those were the words of one Josh Larson. Love opens. This is the explicit 3D sex movie from Gaspar Noé. And out in wide release, the Peanuts movie. Also full of explicit 3D sex, I'm told. <laughs> Charlie Brown and friends on the big screen. And I think, Spectre. I think you're wrong there. I think. Oh, okay. There's no 3D. Okay. I'll make a note of that. <laughs> Spectre out this week. Of course, the big release, the 24th installment of the James Bond franchise. Next week, we will review Spectre. And I'm being told we're going to do something related to Bond for our top five. We'll see if I can wiggle my way out of that. All right. Under your head, you have to choose. Love, the Noe picture, or the Peanuts movie. Which one are you going to see? Love. Without a doubt? Without a doubt. No hesitation. See, that's tough for me. I've I've sat through a couple of Noe movies, and it's not an easy go. No. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Thanks to associate producer Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at Chicago Public Media. More information is available at chicagopublicmedia.org. The music on this week's show is by The Surface of the Deep. It comes from the album Monsters from the Id. More information is at facebook.com slash the surface of the deep. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye.